Merciful Father, we thank you for this time, for our gathering here together. We pray that you would meet us in your word and in the sacrament of the body and blood of your Son. And let your word be sown as seed in our hearts this day, that it may bring forth fruit in the future in our lives. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace upon us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Our gospel text this morning that Robert just read to us is perhaps a familiar story to you. It's a story in which um, we find in this gospel of Mark and his accounting an interesting kind of thing as it comes. Uh, It's interesting because some scholars point out that Mark, though it's the shortest gospel, often provides the most detail in some of his stories. But that does not ring true in this first chapter of his gospel. In the very first verse, of course, he declares that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And everything that comes after that in this book of Mark's is really an unfolding of that statement. Mark is putting before us the gospel the good news of God, the good news of Jesus as both Son of God and as the Christ. Now, it's interesting because he provides in this opening chapter, in spite of what scholars may say, rather succinct stories leading us up to the gospel story that was just read for us. He speaks of John the Baptist. He speaks of the baptism of Jesus. He speaks of the wilderness temptations. In fact, he places these wilderness temptations in his first chapter, whereas Matthew and Luke do not tell us about those until their fourth chapter. Matthew describes that experience in 11 verses. Luke describes it in 13 verses. And here Mark presents it to us in just two verses. It's as if Mark is trying to get us somewhere in his gospel story. Some scholars also suggest to us that Mark shows us Christ in action. And it seems that this is one of those action stories, if you please, that Mark is desiring to convey to us about his account of the life of Jesus. It says they immediately go to the synagogue. You know, he could have said they go to the synagogue or they went to the synagogue. But he tells us they immediately go to the synagogue. And I think Mark is setting us up as his audience to the action that he wants to get us to. To get to the display of this good news of Jesus in action in this story. Now Jesus is invited, as it were, And we have to assume that because he teaches that morning. And it was not uncommon practice in the culture of the synagogues in those days that when they gathered together, if there was a man there who was considered worthy to be heard, that he might be called upon in the moment to teach. And Jesus, apparently familiar as he had become to some of these people, is recognized there and he is called forth, as it were, to give the teaching that day. 
those who were the leaders of the synagogue called upon Jesus. And Jesus begins his teaching. Mark does not tell us the content of that teaching. He simply says that he began teaching them. And as his audience is hearing him, they are hearing something that they've than they've ever heard in their experience of being in synagogue. His teaching strikes them. His teaching, in fact, it says, astonishes them. It amazes them, as it's often translated. And it amazes them because they see Jesus as one teaching them with authority, not as the scribes. And the scribes would have been those people who were the keepers of the law and the interpreters of the law and the teachers of the law. And the way they taught was often simply a recounting of what had already been taught by those who went before them. But on this occasion, they're listening to a man who's not calling upon others, but in reality is speaking from his own voice, from his own authority into their lives in that moment. And because this is an accounting of the gospel, and because we also hear um, Mark tell us that, uh, that, that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, that he was preaching to them that message of the kingdom. But it says that they noted that he spoke with them as one with authority. Now later in his ministry, this question of authority will come before us again. There's an occasion when Jesus is in Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple area and the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come up to him and they ask him two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And secondly, who gave you this authority to do these things? This issue of the authority of Jesus will come up again and again in the minds of his audience. They recognize that he speaks with one as authority. Now the question is, what is the source of that authority? Where does this authority come from? And of course, this notion of authority that Jesus speaks from and in and under always is rooted in the relationship that he had with his father. In Acts chapter 1, we hear these words of Jesus. It is not for you to know periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. So it is the Father who has the authority and Jesus is operating in and under the Father's authority as the Father has sent him into the world to do his mission in the world. The Roman soldier, you recall the story, recognize this authority as well and this functioning in that authority. There was an occasion in which this ruler among the Roman soldiers had a servant that was ill and he calls for Jesus, but he says to Jesus, I am not worthy that you should even come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. And then he says to Jesus, for I too am a man under authority. And I say to this soldier, come, and he comes, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. And this Roman Gentile soldier recognized in Jesus the authority that he was operating under, and he recognized that it was the authority of God Almighty himself. As the German scholar Ferster noted regarding this authority of Jesus, 
it denotes his divinely given power and authority to act. He teaches then not as the scribes, but he teaches as one with authority. The scribes so often interpreted the law and took the law beyond the spirit of the law and what the content of the law itself was and laid these excessive and heavy burdens upon people in their desire to keep the law. Now, when April and I first moved to town, we lived in a rental house in a neighborhood called Pleasant Forest. And when the way our house sit, it was right on the edge of the forest. <laughs> it wasn't really a forest, but they called it that. And um, when you came out of our neighborhood and uh, out of our house and walked down the hill, you were in Pleasant Valley. And um, so we would go that way frequently. And down and around the corner was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And he and his little kids would walk past our house frequently with their little everything that they had, their hat, everything on. Back and forth past our house, walking over to their synagogue. On one occasion, the family across the street from whom we rented the house temporarily had occasion to leave one evening, and they drove going down this same route. And when they got down to the corner, the rabbi is standing out there. It was on Friday evening, close to sunset. And the rabbi motions to them. And they stopped, and he looked at them, and he said something. And the wife said, I think this has something to do with the religion. Just go with him. And he wanted them to come into the house. And he led this man into his house, through the dining room, into the kitchen, and pointed to the oven and said, please turn this off for me. Because this rabbi could not even turn off the oven lest it was too close to sunset. Now, I said you should have looked at him and said, fine, I'll go to hell, and walked out the door. This extenuating layers upon layers that these people would do. And Jesus comes among them and he begins to preach. And they've never heard one like this. And they noted and they recognized his authority. Now Jesus, Mark tells us in, Mark, in his gospel in the 14th and 15th chapters of this verse, shows us the core theme of Jesus' preaching. That the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus came preaching the kingdom and in Acts chapter 1, he leaves preaching the kingdom. The kingdom of God was the theme and the core and the central message of Jesus in all aspects of his ministry. And they're amazed and astonished at this teaching. And they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And this must have, at some level, in their experience, in their lives, this must have felt like a cool and gentle breeze on a hot summer day in July. It catches their attention. And they heard the words of Jesus. And then, in the midst of the congregation, something happens. He preaches, and a demon manifests. Now, that'll separate the men from the boys, okay? He preaches, and this demon manifests in reaction to the gospel that has been preached. 
The kingdom has been proclaimed, and that which is anti-kingdom now reacts, and this demon cries out. And he casts out this demon. And if you read down through the rest of this chapter, you find this same pattern over and over. Not necessarily with demons, but this particular pattern that we find in Jesus' ministry. That there was proclamation and then demonstration. There were words and then there were works. There was explanation and then there was demonstration. He both preaches the word and then he does the works of the kingdom. They both go together hand in hand. So Jesus announces this good news. This authority that he has been given. And then he acts in this authority. This demon manifests itself, and I understand in the modern era in which we live, in our Western scientific worldview, we want to apply all different kinds of explanations and interpretations to what this means. But know this, folks. There are forces and works of darkness that occur in the world in which we live and in the minds and the hearts of men and women that only the gospel can ultimately clear from their hearts and from their minds. And I know sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around these things as moderns and westerns. We want to rationalize these things away at times. We also have to be careful that you don't find a demon under every rock and in every bush, okay? And there are people that are like that. Jesus simply exercises this authority and he gave this same authority to his apostles and to his church. Paul understood this to be given to him both in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He references that the apostles were given the very authority of Jesus to work and to operate. But this authority was always given for the edification of and the building up of the church. It was never given that they might lord it over the people. And there are some well-meaning and sincere Believers out there who tell you to take authority. You know, there are times I've gone through circumstances where you just need to take authority over that. Folks, you don't take authority. You operate under and in the authority that Jesus has. The church has no authority in and of herself. She only has the authority of Jesus. This authority comes to us. Jesus received it. He operated in it. The apostles received it and operated in it. And you and I are to receive and operate in this authority. In fact, you and I cannot even enter the kingdom without an allocation of this authority. Now, it's not usually translated with this word. But the same word is used in his gospel by the apostle John when he says in chapter 1, But to all who did receive him... Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God. But that word that's interpreted there as right in almost every English translation. Is the same word that Mark says of the audience astonishment at Jesus. He taught as one with authority. We could read it this way. 
To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the authority to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. He gave the power to become children of God. The right to become, the power to become, the freedom to become what you were called to be in union with him. As many as received him, he gave this right, this authority, this freedom. Now notice it says, John does, as many as received him. Not who received thoughts about him, not who received doctrine about him. Not who just believes correct doctrine about Jesus, but those who receive him. Those who take hold of him is the implication of that word. Who come into personal relationship with him. The question we could ask about those folks in Capernaum is as they were amazed at his teaching, but the question is, did they receive him? You and I, who have received him, have been given the right, the privilege, the power, the authority to become children of God. And what you and I must recognize within ourselves is that ultimately our true self, our true identity is only that of being a child of God. And oftentimes we abdicate this authority. We allow others to name us, we allow others to label us, we allow others to divine us, and we end up living from a false self. Or after we get caught up in or chase after or get trapped in things that are, that are unrelated to our true self. And often find ourselves entrapped in things unrelated to the Father's grace for us. Paul Kingsnorth pointed out that we call it the web. Searching the web. In his culture they call it the net. But in both cases it's something that traps. And oftentimes searching the web and searching the net causes us to become trapped and causes us to lose our true self and our true identity. This is what the man and the woman did in the garden. They abdicated the position of their true self. They abdicated the authority to be what God had made them to be. They had dominion. They were to operate in the care and work of God's creation and they abdicated that in that moment that they fell. Jesus comes then with this authority, not to condemn, not to put in bondage, not to lay weight upon us and bound us down with rules and laws, but to heal and to free us. This is what he does with the man in this gospel text. He confronts the darkness that invaded this man, and he still confronts the darkness within those of us who will open ourselves to him. The psalmist declared in Psalm 107, he sent his word and healed him. <clears throat> there is a healing of the soul. There is a healing for our souls that only Jesus himself can accomplish. Now I recognize that he may use others in your life along this journey. He uses medical doctors, he uses nurses, he uses therapists. But I tell you that there is an aspect within your being that only the spirit of Christ himself can touch and heal, can restore and renew, can make alive in union with him. Now this is true for us personally and individually. We must receive him. 
but it's also true in the broader community and context of understanding that the church herself must revisit texts like this again and again. And the church specifically in America must ask herself, how is she spending her authority? How is she exercising her authority in this world? Again, I warn you, we must take care that we don't confuse authority with the power to dominate. The temptation is always before us. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie The Mission. It's not my wife's favorite movie. I made her watch it one evening. But it's one of my favorite movies. And this is a spoiler alert in case you haven't seen it. It's a story about some Jesuit priests who traveled as missionaries into South America among some Native Americans that lived there whom some men from Spain and Portugal were wanting to come and take and make slaves out of. And these priests went among, out into this remote village, and were living. And they were prospering, and they were doing well. But along came the mercenaries who wanted control, who wanted power, who wanted to buy and sell these human beings. And in that moment when they realize that they're coming under siege and coming under attack, one of the priests wants to take up arms against the soldiers that are coming. And the lead priest says these words that the church in America must hear and listen to. If might is right, then love has no place in the world. The temptation is always toward power. Not in the sense of operating in and under God's authority, but in the sense of controlling and manipulating people and circumstances. It is a dangerous thing to confuse true authority with power. Power is a temptation always before us. Whether it's in familial relationships, trying to control our children, or employer-employee relationships, or whether it's in church relationships. And in the last 50 years or so, the church in America has sorely been tempted and toward this allure of power. Perhaps with sincere motives, but failing to understand the implications that these things have. We live in such a divided culture, both politically and in cultural many ways. Folks, the reality is we live in a time when it seems that the best that politics can give us is the tug and pull of power struggles between competing parties and grasping after political power and position, often leaving us with the smoke and mirror of policies and the facade of all being well, or at least being better because our side won, when in reality multitudes of citizens still remain stuck in the same state and circumstances they've lived in for decades. This draw to such power is real. The temptation is always before us. Jesus himself faced the allure of this temptation, not only in the desert when he was promised all the kingdoms of the world, but also as we find in the account of John's gospel that we would be wise to note that Jesus fled when he discerned that the masses were about to come and by force make him be king. The church must be who Jesus has called her to be. But she must only speak from the light of the love of God to a world that is lost in darkness. We must be gentle in our response, compassionate in our answers, and we must speak the truth in love. And this can only be true when she is operating in the sphere of Christ's 
true authority. It begins, it begins in the sense that she is no longer crying out and holding on to the dark motions of her own soul. But she is crying out for the grace of Jesus to operate under his true word and message. In many ways, the church in the Western world has lost her voice. The church no longer holds the assumed respect and hearing that she once held in Western cultures. It is seemingly worse in Great Britain and Europe, but in many ways here too in America, like the two men on the road to Emmaus who thought they knew the story of Jesus but needed to hear it again from his perspective, we too need to hear again. Perhaps the preacher was right who noted years ago that Jesus' last message to the church was not the Great Commission, but the last message Jesus gave to the church is found in the book of Revelation when he said to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Repent, and may the one who has the ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And notice it's not what the Spirit said it's what the Spirit says. The Spirit is still speaking if the church will hear. It is only in truly hearing Him that we can find our footing and find our way through these broken times in which we live. Perhaps Paul Kingsnorth is correct when he observed that the only reason cultural wars are happening is because we have no culture left. We must not engage in culture wars as the church. We must be proclaimers and livers and doers and workers of the authority of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus in this world in which we live. As the Father spoke to those with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the question the church in America must ask herself is to whom are we listening this morning? C.S. Lewis once observed that we will either hear the voice of the flesh or the voice of the devil or the voice of the Lord. To whom are we listening? May St. Andrew's Anglican Church be a people that listen, that receive, and that speak into the darkness with his authority. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.